Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. So, so our guest today is Nick O'Neill, the founder of Fortuna Found. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hello. So let's just get started with a really obvious question. What does the name mean? I'm reading that straight off your website. What does the name mean? Yeah. What does Fortuna Found mean? Uh, Well, for me, it's kind of based on the old Latin saying of fortune favors the bold. And it is an approach I have to everything in life um, and uh, with my kite flying and kind of, yeah, with everything is that luck doesn't happen you have to say yes to opportunity. And the more you say yes, the more things happen and the more things you learn. And so in finding luck or fortune or fortuna, you can only do so by uh, seeking out and saying yes. So thus I, I have found, yeah, I have found good opportunity and good luck by doing all this crazy stuff. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. So when we were talking before, before the episode and all that, you are a avid kite aficionado. You're a flyer. You're an educator. You're a proponent for it. And we were, I was kind of coming up with this idea that uh, a buddy of mine used to fly uh, down at Ocean Shores and we had fun. We didn't know what we were doing. We bought some kites, had some fun. And there's this whole culture. And mm-hmm. you uh, are very noticeable online to kites in <laughs> Washington state. Yes. Good. Yes. Washington state and kites, you also kites nationally, you as well. So today I want to ask you just, you know, let's talk about kites, Washington state, how you got started. I was just watching your TEDx and as a 40 pound five-year-old <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at, at Gasworks park. And now yep. all I can think of is that that wouldn't be allowed today your your mother would have probably been hauled off or child abuse in, in some <laughs> yeah. bad way. And I'm just totally joking, but your story, your storytelling there was, was really wonderful. So you started doing this when you were, well, you got introduced to kites when you were five. When did you actually mm-hmm. start flying regularly? So I, I see my kite life as two distinct chapters. Um, there's, you know, me as a kid, where everybody flies a kite, right? All of us have flown a kite at some point in our life. And and we love kites then, but it's different than how I am now. So this new chapter of my kite life uh, started, I'd say probably 2000, 2003, 2004 or so. Um, I was in the military. I was overseas, and I started flying a dual line kite and it just, something resonated with me and it just felt awesome and it felt fun and it felt carefree. And when I came back to the States, I got hooked up with a, a kite shop in Boulder, Colorado of all places. And they kind of introduced me to, there is this whole massive wide world of kites and it's it's just big. And I got suckered into power kiting, got picked up by a a kiteboarding company for uh, snow kiting and what's called traction kiting. So off-road skateboards and buggies um, and going off across the land with a big kite in the sky type of thing. And yeah, after that, I uh, was kind of traveling around showcasing these kites and I 
ended up going to a kite festival where they had this weird, funky indoor kite flying and met a guy there and I just completely fell in love with not only him but also this indoor flying and so now I'm like in a whole other realm of kites and kite flying and I've just yeah really been enjoying this journey because I just said yes why not let's try this thing from the start and so yeah my adult kite life is a little bit different than my child kite life but they're they're similar in a way. So I think for many of us, when we think of kite flying, we might think of a single line kite where you're running, trying to get the thing up in the air with, you know, a diamond shaped paper Mm -hmm. sticks, things like that. We probably have all seen sport kites. You you mentioned, you know, kite buggies, you mentioned Mm -hmm. indoor kite flying, and these are all things that I'm going to guess that are the listeners don't have a clue about. So, but I have a question before I forget. So I wrote it down. So back in, in my kite life. Um, mm-hmm. I always thought it'd be kind of fun to do a kite buggy. I just thought that would be the traction kite thing would be uh, really fun and maybe a motivation for me to lose weight so that the buggy would move because mm-hmm. there's not enough wind. But my understanding was that at that time that in ocean shores, that wasn't legal. Right. So that's, that's a recent change actually. Um, okay. And we're, we're very excited about this. This had been, I was kind of part a little bit a part of helping to get that change that was mainly pushed through by folks from the North America Power Kite Association and some very, very active and eager locals in Ocean Shores and Long Beach, Washington. Um, the huge hang-up, and this is why it was prohibited in a lot of areas, is that those are considered uh, highways. And it's illegal to operate a wind-powered vehicle on a highway. Now, you can camp on the beach, you can have a fire on the beach, and you can sleep in the middle of the beach. And that's not illegal, but you can't have a wind-powered vehicle on the highway. So uh, it took a little bit of rules changing and going through legislature and all this, and they were able to open it up and permit it. And so now it's not permitted on all of the beach, there are certain areas where they've restricted it so it will not affect other beachgoers and so there might not be accidents or or what have you. But yeah, they've they've now opened it up that you can fly kite-powered vehicles, so be it uh, kite buggies or kite land boards, which is the off-road skateboard, um, or mm-hmm. even kite skates, which I don't recommend in the sands because that just kind of sucks. Um, so is that like a roller, like you'd be wearing rollerblades? Yeah, off-road rollerblades. <laughs> they're called Coyotes, and they're or one of the brands is Coyote, and they're they're a lot of fun. But yeah, it's not something for the beach. But uh, yeah, so now you now you can in some places in Ocean Shores and Long Beach operate uh, wind-powered vehicles. I never understood why that was not allowed. It was it was just mm-hmm. kind of. You know, and it makes sense when you're saying it's a highway, but then when you say, well, you can camp and have a fire there and that yeah. doesn't make sense. So you can't do both. Yeah. Last Somewhere, time I checked, I couldn't drive over highway too and just kind of stop in the middle and have a picnic. <laughs> well, you, yeah. Pro- well, traffic sometimes bad enough. You can. Um, <laughs> somewhere in, in my preparation for this, I believe I saw something about a land speed a, a land speed and basically land a, speed a, records yeah 
That's not happening in Washington, but I'm just, it's my show. I can ask the questions. Mm -hmm. So what were you, did you share that somewhere? Is that where I found it? Yeah. Uh, So the new land speed record, I've not been a part of Um, a land speed record that was set uh, a little bit ago. I, I know the guy who set it. I was actually at the event that he set the record at. Uh, like a day or two before our event. And that was down in uh, Nevada on a dry lake bed that's south of Prim, Nevada. It's called Ivanpah. Um, And so much like, you know, the Bonneville salt flats and those kind of areas where people kind of know what that looks like, this looks a lot the same. So it's it's a very smooth, almost frictionless surface. And there was something like 60, 70 mile an hour winds that day. And he got into a buggy and takes off. And it was, it was crazy. I think he topped out at 86 miles an hour that day um, in the kite buggy. Uh, The first run, and I have video of it somewhere, the first run he's out and he sheared off one of the wheel bolts. And so his wheel starts bouncing off and it's a, it's a three wheeled buggy. So there's a, a wheel in front and two wheels in the back. And one of the back wheels sheared off and went bouncing off. And it just so happens that the the guy that was riding, his name's Brian Holgate. Um, he happens to be what we call a trick buggy flyer. So he sometimes does wheelies and pops it up and does all this stuff. So he just popped it up on two wheels doing like 60, 70 miles an hour and came to a stop. And he was safe. And then they fixed it and they went out again and did it. And yeah. Every time I go back and watch that video, it's it's incredible. And of course, we had a lot of beers to celebrate in the days <laughs> after with that. Um, go ahead. Sorry, I get very no, eager. No, no, that, <laughs> is, is there is there a, is there a, are there you know ocean shores or Long Beach? Are there? I know we don't have the sands like like that, but is so how fast can people go? Mm, typically. You know, obviously, if we don't have sixty or seventy mile an hour winds, right. but what what's a what is a good speed if if I'm at Long Beach, let's say. Okay, um, say you're at, let's say we have perfect conditions, right? So you're at sure. you're at Long Beach, and you're in the buggy approved area or the wind power area, and for some reason, it is perfectly packed sand. It's a low tide. So you have just this nice, super hard packed sand, right? So you're not going to sink into it. And it's, you know, it's not super dry. It's not super wet. It's just Goldilocks sand. So it's perfect. And you got 25 mile an hour wind. Um, and say someone my size, some five, six, about 150, 160. Um, depending on the wind direction, it wouldn't, be unheard of to maybe do 15 to 20 if everything was perfect okay um uh, yeah you get into issues with the wind direction and the sand becomes a huge friction point and it'll suck you down so chances are you're more going to be in the five to ten mile an hour range in something like that okay Um, yeah so that just makes what he accomplished even more impressive. Yeah, and he was on a really small kite. So there's there's another one of the the factors in all of power kiting, right? Is uh, bigger kites generate bigger power. 
And uh, he was on what we jokingly called a postage stamp. He was flying on, I think it was a 1.8 meter kite, which is incredibly small. Uh, Anything bigger and he would have been overpowered in that situation because there's no friction and he had the perfect wind direction. And yeah, Uh, whereas 1.8 meters and you're flying down on the beach in Long Beach, you probably won't even get your buggy moving, even if you're a 40 pound five-year-old sitting in the buggy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So there's traction kites, Mm -hmm. which are interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I've never been able to wrap my head around, and it seems like it's fairly popular here in the state is this indoor flying. Yeah. <laughs> Kite flying indoors. I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I scratch my head and go, I think you need wind. How, how, how are these people flying kites indoors and how did we get started in that type of, uh, event hobby? Uh, sport? How did the whole sport get started? Just a bunch of crazy people taking their kite inside and saying, why the heck not? That's because it's raining today. I'm going to go, I'm going to go fly kite indoors. Yeah. Yeah. So actually there's some, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, there's some very interesting history throughout decades and decades of sport kite flying, including uh, when the supersonics, or not the supersonics. Oh man. The, the, yeah. When the Seattle Sonics were here, um, and well, they were the Supersonics. Yeah, yeah, I just, I sometimes forget not everyone knows the Sonics were here or what the I don't Kingdom know that we was. all remember the Sonics now. Yeah. I mean, oh. they've been gone long enough for all kind of like. They went to that you know. other place. It doesn't count, right? Correct. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, moving right along. You know, uh, uh, back when the, the Kingdom was still around and everything, um, there was actually during one of the half times, there was some folks flying indoors in. I think it was the late seventies, early eighties. I just came across the picture recently at the World Kite Museum. Um, but yeah, they were they were flying kites indoors. They were flying stack kites indoors, um, and they got that gig. And this is you know part of the NBA side, right? They got that gig at a halftime show because they had been earlier trying to set like a record for longest indoor flight of a kite. Um, and they had been using the kingdom as a, as a large open space to fly them. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of been around off and on for, for a while and it's really been growing, I'd say the past two decades or so, uh, indoor flying has, and there's a lot of little groups around using, uh, churches, using school gyms, using what they can and just, you know, the kites have gotten better and now we're flying indoors when it's middle of winter and rainy and we don't want to be outside. We go fly indoors. How long are these kites, uh, you know, uh, not a pro, not a, not mm-hmm. somebody who's super, super practiced, but what's a reasonable expectation for an indoor kite flight? Uh, well, there's, all right. So, um, just like kind of with the rest of kite flying, uh, indoor kite flying, there's there's different groups and different kinds of of kites that you can use. Um, the main three types of kites that you see are single line indoor kites, um, which those tend to be what we classify as gliders. So they they just kind of glide around. Then you have two line. Um, sport kites, and then you have four-line sport kites. 
this is my personal belief is that single line is the easiest to get into. Uh, and that's actually what I use when I'm teaching new people, right? So I'm not having to teach them all sorts of movement or anything like this. I literally put the thing in their hand and say, walk to the other side of the gym and see what happens. And it clicks because now that kite's flying. They're like, oh, it's flying. I'm like, yeah, you're walking at two miles an hour. That kite only needs two miles an hour to fly. So now try walking in a circle and see what happens. Right. So they walk in a circle at two miles an hour backwards and the thing's flying. It's doing a set. So that's that's the easiest to get into. Um, and they come in all sizes. I mean, I've got I've got indoor kites that are about this big. I've got indoor kites that are about this big. This isn't an indoor kite. This is just a kite on my desk. So um, I'm going to interrupt you. The first yes. kite she showed her fingers was about the size of a postage stamp. Yes. And the one sorry. that she's holding up now is probably what, six by six? Yeah. Yeah. This one's about six by six. Um, so six inches by six inches. There. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so even some of my super, super feather, featherweight or super ultra lightweight kites um, are about six six inches big, so they're they're small. But most of what I fly with and that I do performances with or perform with my partner with, they're about three feet by three feet, so almost okay. a square. Uh, okay. Yeah. So so they're a little bit bigger visually. They're a little bit more stable. They're easier for folks to get into and to understand and to feel, um, and they make a bigger showy impact. So I've seen people fly bigger stuff indoors and there's really no limits. You want to try and fly it, fly it. <laughs> Sometimes okay. it won't work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're based out of Anacortes, mm-hmm. loosely speaking. Where, where do you like to fly? If you're just going to grab a kite and go outside for a little while, you're not going to go mm-hmm. anywhere special. Where, where do you like to fly around Anacortes? Is there a spot? There, there's a handful of spots, and it completely depends on the direction of the wind. Um, okay. So there is, a, there's the Swinomish Casino, which is nearby, and they have, um, they're kind of at the top of the Laconer Swinomish Channel, and they kind of have an open space that's right there by these big bridges. And if there's good wind coming out of the north, that's a decent place to fly. Uh, but honestly, I would say my two favorite places to fly locally would have to be downtown Oak Harbor. They just redid a park down there. It's called Windjammer Park. And they've done an absolutely mm. beautiful job with making this park, you know, more family user friendly. So there's big open vistas, nice big picnic tables, big, beautiful areas to fly. And I could either be flying on the grass or flying out over over the ocean. And so you know, it's it's just, it's a nice, beautiful spot to be. And then Fort Casey, which is like halfway down Whidbey yep. Island, uh, just a gorgeous place to fly. And, you know, you might see the Olympics down on the peninsula. You can see Mount Rainier. You can see all of the ocean. You can see, you know, Fort Casey is just a very spectacular place to be. And that's what, 30-ish minute drive from Anacortes across beautiful Whidbey Island. So That's not a bad commute to go fly a kite. It's just horrible, you know, to drive that far through beautiful woods to the beach. 
Right. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, someone's got to do it. Thanks for suffering for us. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the, the World Kite Museum. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess the most of our listeners don't know that the World Kite Museum is actually located in Long Beach, Long Beach mm-hmm. Washington. Can you just give us like the 30,000 foot overview of that facility? What, what's it got going for it? And why should people maybe go check it out? Sure. Uh, so the World Kite Museum kind of got started as a passion project for someone that was doing a lot of traveling and collecting kites around the world. One of the first people to go to China and better understand that kite flying culture and wanting to share that with other people. Um And it grew from there. The collection grew from there. And now it's it's a full nonprofit. It's a museum and it's sitting in its own facility. Uh, They're pretty much in downtown Long Beach. They put on the Washington State International Kite Festival, which happens the third weekend of every August. And that brings in anywhere from 40 to almost 100,000 people every year just for the kite festival. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's an wow. amazing festival and even if you're not a kite flyer, I tell people they should go attend it cuz it's it's beautiful and it's just breathtaking. Um but of course, you know, the museum being a museum, its main focus is on the preservation and sharing uh kind of the cultural history and the societal history and just the general history of kites. Uh so they have bits and pieces from around the world. They try to kind of share a little bit about all aspects of kite flying. So you have you have sport kite flying, you have kiteboarding, they have some uh, traction kiting in there. They have uh, some original pieces from uh, kites being used in the military and scientific stuff. Um, yeah, they kind of just have a little bit of everything and it just opens up your eyes to, hey, look, kites are here too and kites are there. And you didn't know that you appreciated kites because they're pretty much a part of everyone's life, whether or not you actively seek to fly or not. Yeah, see, I I don't, I wouldn't. It's not th- I'm not disagreeing with you. I just wouldn't have thought of it in those terms. Yeah. Know, so. uh, one of the examples I like to use is uh, a lot of people remember or they have seen uh, a rather classic photo of San Francisco after the fire where it pretty much burned down the whole city. Um, and people are like, oh, yeah, I think I've seen that photo. Uh, that's one of the very, very first recorded, we call them cap photos. So it's a kite aerial photography. So that okay. that photo was actually taken by kite. The the camera was lifted into the sky by a kite, and essentially it rotated and shot the whole scene of San Francisco after it burned. So, and now we can just clip a GoPro to the the kite. And yeah, it's a lot easier take... now than lif- lifting forty pounds of camera equipment. Right. Do you ever just out of just total mm-hmm. random aside? Do you ever put like a GoPro or some small digital mm-hmm. camera? Yep. You do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, what was it? Uh, just on Sunday, I had a discussion with some fellow, uh, content creators in, in kites, very specifically kites. Uh, and we were talking about 
you know, new ways of filming. Like, okay, we've seen this attached to a kite. We've seen that. Like, how can we make it more interesting? And we got into a hour-long discussion on how to tweak that, right? <laughs> so it's it's something that it can be done. Um, you do have to look at... Even though camera technology has gotten a lot better, things have gotten a lot more compact, uh, that's still weight that you're adding mm-hmm. to a kite. And so you're you're affecting something that mm-hmm. its purpose is to overcome, you know, gravity and and fly. It needs the pressure. So if you're adding more weight and more pull onto it, you need more pressure to lift it type of thing. So wouldn't you be able to like, if you're using one of those large traction kites, mm-hmm. the big, you know, the, wouldn't they have enough lift? Wouldn't it be easier for one of those than say from a, a stunt kite to, to over. Yeah. Take up that yeah. The, the bigger, the bigger, the sail, the bigger, the weight, the kite already has the less likely it's going to be influenced by, you know, adding a handful of grams. Um, right. Very specifically in that conversation that I had with the, with my friends and stuff, uh, where we found it was affecting, especially in kiteboarding kites, is that it may add pressure to a given line that that um, may tell the kite where to go, or it may be the safety on the kite, right? And you don't want you don't want extra pressure just on one drive line because now the kite's going to gotcha. keep wanting it keep. It right. wants to constantly turn to the left because now that line, that line has a one pound weight hanging off of it. So you have to equalize it and you have to take that stuff into account. Yeah. It's <laughs> just as soon as you think it's really easy, it's like, oh, wow, actually, that's kind of complicated. <laughs> we made it harder. Yeah. Until, yeah. until we make little, you know, little cameras like the size of a quarter that are mm-hmm. super thin and you can put two of them up there and, and offset the lines, but we're probably a year or two away from well, that actually, technology. Uh, so the, the funny thing is, is that we keep going back. Um, our solution right now is that we keep going back to technology that was invented with the first cap rigs, the first kite aerial uh, photography rigs. And they're called, uh, I always mess this up. I, I think it's called a Picavet. And it's essentially a, yeah, it, I can't remember what it's named after, but it's a self-balancing platform that's suspended on lines. And those lines okay. then go to the various points. And naturally, gravity is going to balance the platform and the lines just kind of go through these little rings and it balances itself out. And so then you have oh. equal pressure on everything instead of single pressure. You just give it more places to pull on. Yeah. But that's like hundred plus year old technology and we're still using it. <laughs> well, you know, just because it's old doesn't mean it's not good still. I mean, exactly. That's, I think, exactly. You need to kind of remember that sometimes that things that are just because it's not the latest model doesn't mean that it doesn't have a purpose of in great value to us. Mm-hmm. One of the things we always ask and we'll kind of weave these in normally I ask them at the end, but for the sake of this conversation, because we just already had to go through that drive through Whidbey Island that was so brutal for you. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Where, where else in Washington is like, give us your top three places to, that you prefer to fly kites in Mm. Washington state. So if it's a suggestion for other people to go and fly, I want them to have the best experience they can. And of course I'm going to recommend the coast. Um, Pretty much anywhere on the coast is, is great. 
Uh, I have a special place in my heart for Pacific Beach, Moclips area, and also Claylock um, and La Push. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, those are the easiest, best places for other people to fly, and I still love them. Now, places that I have a special place, or there, it's a special place in my heart and that I love flying, um, are tricky. And I guess part of the reason I love them is because it has not been easy to make it work. Uh, so one of them, oh, okay. yeah, one of them is on essentially, it would be the south side of Mount Baker and doing it in the winter and hiking up to an area called Park Butte Lookout. So depending on the snow, I might have to snowshoe in about eight, nine miles just to get to the open space where I could maybe fly. And then you're, you're literally, you're kind of just looking up at Baker and it's massive and it's beautiful and it's just expansive and it's incredible. Um, and the wind is crap and it's never coming from where you want it to. And, and you can never fully pretend it and it's so difficult and it's so rewarding and so amazing you know it's it's the whole journey of that uh, so how many times have you made that trek and been successful uh, with flying eh. <laughs> have you uh well thankfully i haven't defined what success is for that okay <laughs> Okay. Uh, I've, I've, I've done it quite a few times um, and I've flown a handful of times. There's more often than not, I don't even get to the destination and have to turn around type of thing, or I don't oh. even get the kite out and I've had to turn around type of thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, that that one's a that one's a special place for me because I, I'm gonna make it happen, right? Like it's gonna okay. happen. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, another place that would be that would be special for me, actually. Ooh, this is this is kind of a weird one, and I think people are going to be surprised by this. Um, once I got in trouble for it, or actually, sorry, I got asked not to do it, um, and I understand why. So I didn't, and I moved somewhere else and kept doing it. Um, I know this sounds weird. SeaTac Airport, not out on the airstrip. I mean, inside the terminal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I, I had a small little indoor flyer. Um, and so okay. we're talking something that's like maybe eight inches across. Uh, and I travel a lot for kite flying. And I have this little tiny indoor kite that is with me at all times in my backpack. And it's relaxing and I can pull it out anywhere. And I've been to a lot of airports. And, you know, there's a special place in my heart for SeaTac. Uh it's had its problems, but it's unique. There's usually like, you know, there's live music and there's local food and there's really this encouragement of kind of, you know, that I, I the Seattle atmosphere inside SeaTac. So it's just kind of funky and unique. And so I pulled out my kite and yeah, fly right in front of uh, 
Beechers. <laughs> so like quintessentially <laughs> Washington, right? I get a Beechers sandwich and a Starbucks Americano, and then I go to find an empty little seating area and I fly my kite. <laughs> and they've, they've, they've asked you to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why, what was the reasoning? Just out of curiosity, what, what was the reasoning for asking you to stop? I, I didn't push it. Um, I've, sure. I've been asked to stop in a handful. I've done this in a lot of airports <laughs> when I'm bored and I'm <laughs> sitting around and I want to move. Um, you know, it, it looks different. Right. And I think that elicits a response. So people are like, someone's doing something over there and I don't know what they're doing. Right. Um, even though I'm, I'm not like flopping around or anything, it's very slow, calm movements, but yeah, it's, I, I was asked to stop and I was like, okay, that's cool. And I walked over to another area where there was no one sitting and I flew right there. So, yeah. So I, I know that's kind of a strange one. But I, have- I would not have put that on my top 10 list of guests. <laughs> yeah. Guesses. I said guest guesses. <laughs> you, you would have given me 10 and it wouldn't have been CTAC. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, that one always has special memories, partly because that's also involved with going or coming from a kite festival, right? Um, okay. Or going and coming from travel uh, to wherever. So it's just kind of capping off the like, hey, look, I had to go here for some stupid work commitment. I'm going to make this a kite event by bringing a kite with me and I'm going to fly it in the airport. Ha-ha. Um, so, yeah, let's see. A third one. Mm, I'm, if it's, oh, man, I'm really trying to explore some urban stuff right now. So... I haven't found the right one per se. Uh, so I'll stick with natural, natural areas. Um, yeah, I'll go back to uh, the Rialto Beach La Push area. Okay. Um, it's not easy to fly there. The wind is usually howling pretty hard. Uh but it's just a stunning backdrop, and I I like the fact that I can completely disconnect from everything. You know, there's no cell phone reception. Uh, usually, the place I stay, there's no TVs, there's no radio, there's there's nothing, right? And so, I don't have those distractions, and I can just be completely connected with just my kite and and the world around me and what's going on. So, yeah, I guess that's more about the feeling than necessarily the, the ease of kite flying. So as you can see, I'm not picking the best places to fly a kite. It's just the best places I, I go to fly. (laughs) But but what you're, what you're bringing up though, that I think is, is very interesting is the secondary benefits of flying Mm -hmm. a kite being present in the moment, maybe being disconnected from our phone, not looking at a screen, being outside in nature, indoor, you're flying. It's a moderate two mile an hour walk. You're not really getting, you're not Mm -hmm. really exerting yourself. If you were doing traction kiting, it's far more physical, but you're out connecting with with nature, enjoying, enjoying the environment that you're in. Yeah. Um, Both your, your Mount Baker and your Rialto beach, You've already said they're not the easiest places to fly. So you're not just rushing out to <laughs> yeah. rushing out to a place that's got perfect wind 
all the time, which there is no place, but you're going because there's a, a secondary benefit and your kite is a, it just enhances the connection to that. And that's kind of cool because when I think of kite flying, I, I just think of the coast because the wind is there and it's mm-hmm. an open beach and people are doing it. So I don't think of those, those, those I would not have thought of SeaTac airport. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know I if know. I should encourage everyone to do that. Cause then I might, <laughs> I might never get we'll to do it again. We'll put a disclaimer at the bottom <laughs> yeah. that the, 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 the locations are the opinions and you know, not, you know, whatever. Yeah. So on, on your website, you're, you're, starting a project where you kind of said you have this project. Mm-hmm. And I know before we started recording, you said kind of gotten pause this year, but I I'd like to circle to it because it's definitely relates to something that we're trying to do here as well. So I'd, I'd like to talk about that. And that is you want to visit all the Washington state parks, yeah. which is something that <laughs> you want to do and you want to rate them for kite flying. Yes. Yeah. Which I just think is really cool. Um, you know, there's 140 some parks in Washington state. And since you can fly indoors, I guess we can fly anywhere. Yeah. And you want to do this whole, um, this whole account of all the state parks and then rank them. Um, well, not rank. Maybe, well, maybe you will. Maybe you'll do your top 10 list. Yeah. Knows, but. Yeah. It's kind of ranking. And this is, of course, fully understanding there are some places it is actually illegal to fly for, for various reasons, be it mm-hmm. wildlife or historic structure. So it's right. more just kind of using it as a an approach to see all the state sure. parks. Which I think is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's kind of cool. And, I, I you know, I, I, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at your, your uh, Washington State Park kite rating guide of the sing, you know, you're starting with single line and then go to sports and then inflatable and glider and kite boarding. Mm-hmm. Let me just put you on the spot. <laughs> what would, what would in your mind, a state park that would be, you know, kite boarding, where would be one that would be that you think would, that would get that designation? Ooh, a state park. Um, yeah. So that one, I'm not sure just yet. Like I, I've been kind of trying to look for that, right? Um, I, I know for national park side, like Hurricane Ridge, which is mm-hmm. Olympic National Park, it's still here in Washington State. Uh, that would be yeah. a kiteboarding one, right? I mean, you can drive up to it, but you cannot experience it without like going out and doing it and being a part of it. Um, state park side, though... You know, I might actually put Cape Disappointment almost into that realm. So you can enjoy driving around Cape Disappointment, and I don't want to turn people off from doing that. But to me, some of the most impressive parts of Cape Disappointment, which is right there at Long Beach, is uh, is hiking around. Um, and it they've made the trails nice, but it's not super easy hike. There's some ups and downs, right? Uh, there's also an incredible little spot to go surfing and surfing there is a, it's a once in a lifetime experience. It's not, you know, the greatest waves of Hawaii, but it's, it's unique and it's different. And that's how you can really enjoy that part of the park. Right. And understand it. Yeah. So it'd be stuff like that, right? Something that like really makes it that you, you have to try something that is maybe pushing your boundaries to really, experience the depth and breadth of the park. Okay. Where would Fort Casey fall in your, in your chart? Ooh, 
I think I would say Fort Casey kind of falls in the, did I call it the inflatables? Inflatables here in the, in the middle, big wide open spaces. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, because most of that park is just big, wide open spaces. It used to be a military establishment. And so there's old bunkers you can kind of walk through, but it's the, the draw of it. And the big thing about it is that you are standing out in this beautiful, open grassy knoll and there's a ton of stuff to see uh there's some great trails there and they connect with other trails but yeah the the main like draw of that is the big open space so how are you going to uh share your findings are you going to put this on fortuna found what do you what are you going to do yeah so uh the the plan is again things got a little bit on hold you know because of the year and <laughs> we couldn't really encourage a lot of people to go out to state parks and we couldn't do a lot of travel so um while there's the what 140 or so state parks there's an additional about 100 or so state managed lands that are okay. within the state parks system so these aren't they're they're kind of in this weird like realm right um, and I also wanted to highlight those as well, because I think a lot of those get overlooked. Um, but of course, couldn't do a lot of travel. So 2020 kind of put a, a stop on that. But the the plan is to continue forward with that and putting it out on my website, uh, doing a whole special uh, Instagram and YouTube channel dedicated just to highlighting state parks of where I'm coming at it from a kite flyers perspective and kind of talking about kites. It's really just like, I want to share the love of state parks. I grew up essentially in a state park and I'm lucky enough that right now we bought a house that is backed up to a state park. <laughs> so <laughs> I've worked for state parks. I love state parks and I, I think they're a wonderful asset. So yeah, uh, the website, uh, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, of course, Facebook, and hopefully Reddit, and you know, everywhere else I can think to put it. Out. Everywhere else you can think of to put it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great, I think it's a great project. It's a, it's a very ambitious project. Yes. I think it, um, I, I, it go, well, because we're kind of trying to, um, you know, like, like I said, wrap our brains around how to do it ourselves. And it's, you know, logistically, okay, how do you, how do you go and do this? And yeah, prom <laughs> and, 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 and showcase promote the, the, the state park. And, and, and if you're going to commit to doing all of them, wow. Um, yeah. That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of driving. It's a lot of uh, getting out and, and not complaining. And this is what we do. This is what we do for, this is for me, this is a, a you know, a passion project. It's fun. I'm not trying to say I don't want to do it it's just kind of daunting to go, okay, I'm going to go do this. Yeah. It's a good thing. I <laughs> love camping. So yeah. yeah. Well, and see, see, I don't see, cause my idea of camping is bad room service. Oh man. Yeah. So, see, I'll sleep so, in the back of my car. I'll be excited. <laughs> right. And so, I'm going to be anyway. So we're, you know, you're going to come at it from a, a, a very unique and different angle and we're going to come at it from a different angle. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think it's great that you're doing that uh, as well. Yeah, actually, a conversation. Oh, oh go ahead. sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say that uh, part of a conversation we had a little bit earlier, and something that's kind of a part of this, um, 
that I, I really appreciated uh, that you had said is that part of the state park thing that I'm doing is I'm also wanting to highlight some of the stuff that's in the community around the park. Uh, having grown up in a park, I know that part of the reason that that park is so beautiful and is such a treasure is because of the community around it. They invest in it. It becomes it becomes a part a piece of them. Um, so I, I essentially grew up in Moran State Park on Orcas Island. My family operated the food stand and the boat launch for like 40, 50 years. We sold oh, wow. firewood. In, I grew up as like a little seven-year-old selling firewood in the park, riding out of the back of the truck, yelling firewood, you know, through the campground. So, But you, you had a, you had a seatbelt on and you're uh, wearing a helmet, right? No, not at that age. No, <laughs> this was the eighties. Come on. <laughs> yeah. That's also where I learned how to spit a, you know, a cherry pit at a mail sign and, or mailboxes and dent a mailbox. So, yeah. Um, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so I, I grew up, you know, knowing that it is very much the people that also surround a park that make that park so special because they invest in it and it is a part of who they are. And so that's that's another thing that I'm wanting to do is be like, hey, there is really awesome food over at this little hot dog stand that's just around the corner. Check them out because it's a local, it's their thing. And yeah, and I know that's something kind of uh, that you do is, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, we're... We're all about trying to um, give, you know, awareness about non-franchise. N- nothing against. There's some large Washington corporations that we don't talk about per se. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they do wonderful things. Mm-hmm. But I jokingly say, you know, we don't need to talk about the space you know, because it's been talked about enough. And so let's talk about something else in Seattle that maybe somebody hasn't seen a thousand times and there's wonderful little places to grab a cup of coffee in just about every community. Yeah. There's a gas station coffee where you stop and you know, the little coffee stand that's outside the gas station. It's no joke here in the Northwest. Just do it. (laughs) It can be really good coffee. I did a a series, a hundred cups of coffee in a hundred days as a way, as a way of, uh, uh, kind of memorializing my dad. My dad and I uh, would spend a lot of time just drinking coffee. My dad loved to drink coffee and he loved bad coffee. Diner, co- <laughs> diner coffee. And yes, I'll drink it, but, mm. and I prefer you know, better coffee. Mm-hmm. And so I made it my, my mission to go out for a hundred days and do a hundred cups of hundred cups of coffee in a hundred days. And I, uh, I failed and it's on pause right now as my stomach recovers. <laughs> I ate the stomach. No, and all seriousness, I just kind of got to the point where I was like, I needed to take a break from it. But there are some absolutely amazing coffee shops in the weirdest places. Yeah. And I drink black coffee. I just, I will drink, you know, an espresso beverage. I have no problem with that, but I just, I like black coffee. And I haven't talked about this one. I'm just going to, hijack this thread oh, and just here's this weird here's this weird little thing <laughs> so a buddy of mine who doesn't drink coffee at all i convinced him to go have a cup of coffee with me in uh, lakewood down out of tacoma and it was in this strip mall that was um a korean 
strip mall. So all the signs were in Korean and all of that. And this place was, I'd heard good things, but I didn't know what to expect. So we, we go in and it's a strip mall in Lakewood. Mm-hmm. And when you walk inside, it's all yellow and white, very peaceful. There's electric electric fireplace over against the back wall. And there's two, two guys in their twenties working there. And, uh, they recognized me because they had been reading that I'd done this. And so they were really thrilled that we were there. And I haven't published this one. So this is kind of, you know, just sharing the story because it was mind blowing. So we're, you know, they bring the coffee. I don't have my coffee. It's a great cup of coffee. It's a roast out of Seattle, great ambiance. And my friend and I are sitting there and we're listening to the the music. The mu- I'll call it the Muzak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're like, he goes, is that what I think it is? Like, that's the offspring. <laughs> being played on piano. And it, this is so quintessentially Pacific Northwest. And then the next thing is Lincoln Park. And I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's lounge piano music, but Lincoln Park and the offspring and Soundgarden. I just want to go back there. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love, so the whole point though, is like you're saying, go to these state parks. Mm-hmm. They're, so, you know, I don't want to say they're off the beaten path, but they're not in downtown Seattle, downtown Bellevue necessarily. And you don't know where you're going. You don't know what's good. And you can take a chance or you can look at your site and you'll say, oh, the hot dog stand, go check that out. Or we'll say, here, go have coffee over here. Mm-hmm. And I think people really, I think that's a whole lot better than stopping at say McDonald's or no offense to Starbucks, but Starbucks. Yeah. Hey, Starbucks uh, is consistent. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I, I use it for that. But yeah, if I'm if I'm the Pacific Northwest, you're going to find me stopping at a gas station. Most likely right. the little coffee and then, you stand. Know, you find this, find this magical cup of coffee and, you know, a pastry that was mm-hmm. baked at somebody's house. Oh, yeah. I'll take grandma's it's cookies kind of any day. <laughs> right. And so it's kind of fun to explore the state. And that's what we that's what our our goal is. Yeah. And then as you get out you start to get exposed to people flying kites, people doing other things, Mm -hmm. people snowshoeing. Uh, I I get to talk to a lot of people who do things that I'm never going to do. And um, well, I'm just not, it's just, it's not my wheelhouse, (laughs) but it still doesn't mean it's not interesting to me. It's, you know, it's still, and I think people get a kick out of, of hearing about these things because indoor kite flying, who'd have thunk it, Um, you know, but when we talked on the phone, I don't know, it's been a month ago or so. When oh, we had, yeah. We had a great conversation. <laughs> um, you you brought up something, and and I and, and I'm totally you're not prepared for this, but I think it's easy for you. <laughs> I, Columbia Gorge mm-hmm. and 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 kiteboarding, or can you kind of try to share with our audience how crazy does one have to be to do that? I mean, um. really. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. So the gorge is, is a very special place. Um, it is kind of, it's one of the kiteboarding meccas of the world type of thing. Right. Right. Um, so that is a, a, there is a lot of kiteboarders there and most of them are out of, uh, Hood River, Oregon. But of course, you know, the Columbia River runs through both it goes right between the state. So uh, some of them are from the Washington side. Um, but yeah, uh, first and foremost, the gorge isn't the easiest 
place to fly or to learn. Um, part of okay. that is because of the boat traffic. It's still a major shipping channel. Um, part of that is because of conditions. Uh, so it's like a continuous like suck fest of trying to figure out, am I stepping on someone's toes? Am I like getting in the way of a big freighter who is not going to move for you and your piddly little kiteboard, right? Am no, I getting hung no. up on a bridge? I mean, it's there, there are countless things, right? Um, but sure. there are areas and there are some incredible schools down there that will take you on and teach you and give you what you need to learn. Um, kiteboarding isn't really a crazy thing. It can be. Uh, you can really, really push the boundaries. You can really push the limits. But it's more it's a it's more just saying yes to the activity and getting out there and doing it. Uh, it just like skiing, right? You could just be mm -hmm. a groomer. You can just go and enjoy skiing corduroy and you know, perfect bluebird conditions and everything's awesome. And and I say this as someone that grew up in Washington State and moved to Colorado for the powder and I became a horrible powder snob and I only went out on perfect days type of thing, right? So it, you can be that kind of skier or you could be mm -hmm. the crazy big mountain free skier, right? That does the crazy stuff. And it's just like that with kiteboarding, right? So you can... You can just go out and have fun and be out for a ride and enjoy it. Uh, something that we have noticed is it tends to be something for middle-aged folks to get into. And a lot of market research says that's because now you have the money. Kiteboarding is not cheap. Oh. Um so what does a what does a kite cost for a kite? Uh, if you're talking brand new to get a kite and a board and yeah. a harness. Um, okay. And so, first of all, chances are you need more than one kite. If you only have one kite, that means you're really restricted on the conditions you fly in. So, you're probably going to buy like three, uh, two or three. But just for that basic setup, kiteboarding, kite, brand new, plus the board and uh, harness, easily $2,000. Easily, if not more. You could be pushing $5,000. Um, and you definitely want to pay for lessons. I highly, highly suggest people pay for lessons, at least the first two lessons. It is worth what you're going to pay, and it's going to save you so much anguish, and it could save your life. Uh, so, you know, taking lessons, you're looking at a few hundred dollars up front there. Um, so, yeah, kiteboarding is not cheap to get into. It's cheaper to get into other kites, but it is a lot of fun, just like any sport. Do you use the same kites for kiteboarding as you would um, up on the mountains? Yes and no. Uh, it's pretty okay. much a similar setup. Uh, you can. Some people do. Um, okay. One of the big differences, and I'm going, I know if you have any kiteboarders listening now, they're probably going to be screaming at the podcast. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, so traditionally, uh, on the water, you have what's called an LEI, a leading edge inflatable. So it actually, the edge of the kite, the front edge of the kite, or the leading edge of the kite, and the struts. So it's kind of like the spine um, okay. of the kite. They're actually pumped full of air to give them rigidity 
And then you just have a skin that's kind of suspended across that. Those are great for water, right? Because if it goes down in the water, you have a flotation device. You can easily ride it and get it back up. Um, Okay. You can take those up in the mountains. People do. There's some complications with taking those up in the mountains. So it's a, it's a pros and cons thing. Um, a lot of times what you see in the mountains is foil kites. So there's no, there's no leading edge that's been pre-inflated or anything like that. It's actually, it almost looks like a parachute. It's, we call them foils. And so air goes inside the foil and pressurizes the sail and creates the structure for the sail. Uh, so as the kite is flying, it stays inflated and, you know, does its thing. And now you have your wing and it creates the, the momentum and, and all that. The advantage to those being up in the mountains is now, say, I use it to go up a mountain. I can easily stuff that foil into a backpack and ski down. It's kind of hard to do that with oh. a leading edge inflatable. Those don't pack down as compactly. Yeah. So, so in Washington, is there a place? In, is there places in Washington that would be good for for using a kite on the snow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, there's there's a handful of places. There's um, what is it? Keechis. Oh, I forget what its full name is, but it's essentially the reservoir that's up on I ninety. Uh, some people fly there during the winter. Um, Okay. It's not unheard of to Yeah, 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 that one. I'm like, I I can see it in my head. (laughs) Driven it hundreds of times Mm -hmm. and yeah. Yeah, that one's condition dependent, of course. Um and mountain flying is tricky. There is nothing that's easy about it. There's all sorts of other complications involved. Um of course, any of the open mountains, most of them you may or may not be able to ride in. Um I believe it's, I think Olympic National Park, you're not allowed to. Most national parks don't allow uh, kiteboarding or kite flying within the park realm. So it's pretty much a blanket ban. But you could do it up the side of Baker if the conditions are right. Um, Wow, okay. I would be very careful doing that. Uh, And then, of course, you know, probably the easiest, and this is depending on snow and if you have some friendly farmers, is over on the east side. All that big open farm space, when it gets snow, uh, go out across the Palouse and just ride. I mean, why not? As long as the farmer's okay with it. (laughs) I have a friend with a farm in Cleelum. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, I used to ride at a sod farm in Quincy. Um, Oh, yeah. So they, they were kind of okay with it. And it was like, okay, so if there's snow, I'm coming over and I'm going to ride. And they're like, all right, cool. Just don't. Well, it's not like you're really hurting anything. Right. You know? Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. That's just, uh, see, the, the whole thing is that, I mean, if somebody starts thinking about kites, now to you, this is all old hat, all these different varieties, but when you, if you're, if you're new to the concept, this, there's just all sorts of opportunities mm-hmm. here. So, um, well, it wouldn't be an episode of, if I didn't ask this, the stock question. So we're <laughs> going to kind of, we're going to, we're going to move into the move away from kites per se, but we'll move in. So when you're not flying kites and you're not working your day job, where is a good place to go grab lunch, beer, 
where, where's your go-to places around you? Oh boy. <laughs> and then I'll go, and then I'll go, and then I'll go, you know, if you go anywhere in Washington, where's a place you've been before that you go, Oh, that's a cool place. We should talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, so I kind of hate to suggest this one because uh, Anacortes is a tourist town, especially during the summer. Uh, and the place I like to go is slightly off the beaten path. And so during the summer, it's nice because it's, it's not overrun. I can actually get a table. I can get, you know, yeah. a beer and it's got a spectacular view. And it's called okay. Secret Cove. Um, and okay. there is nothing fancy about this place. It is pretty straightforward. Uh, but if I can go there for happy hour with my partner, uh, we get both of us might have two drinks and we have happy hour appetizers and we can walk out of there paying 35 bucks. And we have just, wow. yeah, we have just sat on the water and watched, uh, you know, boat traffic go by and we're looking at the Guimas channel. So we're looking over at Guimas Island and it's just absolutely beautiful, right? You are literally sitting above the water and you're right next to the docks and stuff like this. So it's a little bit industrial and, and water view. It's worth it. And it's, it's awesome, okay. right? So really it's the ambiance, uh, the, the bartender there slash, the cooks and stuff are, they're amazing people. They're just really friendly. They, yeah, they're, they're really good people. Um, the food isn't, it isn't amazing, but it's, it's just what you need. Right. It's pub grub. You know, you know, just- in a way, right. You know, so it, even if you don't go there f- or you've never been there, it's kind of your neighborhood bar, right. You walk in and you okay. just feel like this is awesome. Right. So that's, that's the okay. secret cove. That's in Anacortes. Um, and man. So, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me, let me reframe, reframe the question. Where uh, gas station coffee. Uh-huh. <laughs> How about gas station coffee? Gas station coffee for 200. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that we have some small batch roasters around here. Uh, and one of those small batch roasters actually has um, their their roasting place happens to be right next to my work, so I can stop in there. And they do have some gas station kiosks, but they also supply my work with coffee, so I'm really not complaining. Um, there you go. Yeah, and uh, that's that's Mocha Joe's. Um, okay, I, I have heard of them. Yeah, um, saw them up on in Oak Harbor. Yep. Yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, the coffee shop we stopped at up in Oak Harbor had, had them. Yeah, so okay. um, Mocha Joe's. I'm I'm not trying to speak bad of them. Um, they're they're not my favorite coffee in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. My favorite coffee in the world is actually out of uh, Tum Water. Um, it's called Three Peckered Billy Goat. <laughs> the art on it is uh, from a very, very famous artist that all of us here in Washington State know that it's also from Alaska. Um, Ray Troll. Uh, y- you've seen his artwork. It's the salmon stuff. It's the kind of characteristic stuff. But uh, Mocha Joe's is it's just a nice, good cup of coffee. And they do small batch roasting. And they do a lot of work 
of like public and community outreach. So they do a lot for, you know, some local folks that have fallen on hard times for, you know, research stuff. They do a lot to help people. And that really means a lot to me in my cup of coffee. I'm, I'm willing to spend the money on a cup of coffee when I know that they do that much free giving back to the community. Like that, that really means a lot to me. Uh, so no, that's, that's great. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that small businesses can really uh, differentiate themselves mm-hmm. with is, is what they choose to do with their, with their revenue, their profits and how they want to, if they choose to support the community that they're based in or the community that they're based around. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great. Yep. I have never heard of that coffee out of Tom Water. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, called Raven's Raven's Brewery or something like that. And three peckered Billy goat. Uh, yeah. You just have to look it up. <laughs> uh, I'll Google it. <laughs> yeah. It's delicious. Okay. It is delicious coffee. Okay. All right. All right. And when you travel the state, anywhere else in the state, anything else come up? Uh, where's Where's your favorite place to go camping in the state? Ooh. Are you going to go back out to La Push area? Uh, it completely depends on the season, the conditions. <sighs> I mean. So you're going to go camping this weekend, Halloween weekend. Yeah. We're recording this right before Halloween. Yeah, actually I am. It's the last. <laughs> okay. So, all right. <laughs> Where does one go camping on Halloween? Okay, well, so tomorrow I'm headed up and I'll actually be staying at a place called Lake Wenatchee, just outside of Leavenworth. Um, And I'll be staying kind of north of Lake Wenatchee in some forest lands and dispersed camping up there. Um, But there is, uh, I love the icicle brewery there um, that's in downtown Leavenworth and Cured Meats. I think it's actually just called Cured. Sure. Yeah, they do an amazing selection of meats. And with my, both from my own personal experience and my partner being from Holland, we have a real profound love of traditionally cured meat. And they do, okay. they do some really good stuff. Um, that's a little bit more on, on the beaten path. I'd say for off the beaten path, uh, Actually, downtown Omac, or is it Okanagan? I don't know. Those two towns are right next to each other. Uh, yeah, is the Breadline Cafe. I don't know if you've been there, but it is. I, I have not, and I'm thinking that's downtown Okanagan. Like, I can see exactly where it's at, and I just can't, like, visualize. Was that Omac or Okanagan? But uh, the Breadline has some incredible history behind it. Uh, if you go, it's actually Omac. Ah, yes, Omac. <laughs> it's one of the O towns. I was wrong. <laughs> yes, um, it actually has some really incredible music history behind it. Some bands and stuff that have come through there, but they just do some good home style cooking. And like during mm. during kind of the edge of summer time frame, you can get right? fresh huckleberry lemonade, like. Someone oh. actually hiked up into the woods and picked some huckleberries and you can get some huckleberry lemonade, which I love. Let's, let's <laughs> go back here. Then. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a, my show. We can talk about what's going on. Yeah. So tell me about this bands here uh, at the Breadline Cafe. Mm-hmm. What sort of music are you referencing? Uh, so uh, like the first band that comes to mind was Too Slim and the Tail Draggers. So it's kind of like okay. fun, you know, like fun. Yeah almost Americana rock, just kind of having 
enjoying and all that. Yeah, no. But there, there's actually been some famous bands that have, um, like, they, the singers and stuff, they come through and they go up to Tenasket and go on personal retreats, and they'll come do just like a sit down, you know, off the record kind of coffee house playing session at the Breadline, and you're like why the hell was this guy here? (laughs) Like, this is the most (laughs) random place. OMAC Washington. And I don't think he did, but it would be like, OMAC Washington, Bruce Springsteen is just doing a coffee session of playing. And and you're like, what? So yeah, they, they have. Well, I, I just, I'm on their website Mm -hmm. and I just found this list of who's played there. And it's four, four columns wide. Yeah. And I, I don't know, 150 names. Oh yeah. And it's, it's a kind of quirky random place. I mean, it's like random thrift shop finds are just kind of everywhere. Usually the silverware doesn't match. There's a bike hanging on the ceiling. I mean, it's just, it's so weird and it's awesome. And the food's delicious. How did I not hear about this place? <laughs> How did I not? How did I not hear about yeah. this place? Yeah, and it's thank you, thank you for being a guest. If nothing else, for this right here. Yeah, and it's just good, simple home style cooking. You know, we're not we're not talking four star Michelin, like oh my god, but it's just like you know what? I just want some mac and cheese and some cornbread and I don't know, you know, something. Right? This is just like home style right. cooking. You're like. Well, it's um, comfort food. If you exactly, will. like man, you hit it. Comfort you food. hit it. Yeah. No, there's wow. What a <laughs> send you down the rabbit hole. Wow. Yeah, I'm gonna have to come back. The Flying Karmazinov brothers played there. Mm-hmm. Go figure. Enter. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's just not wow. usually okay. announced when the bands are coming through because, again, sometimes they are just going up for you know private retreats up at. Uh, Oh, there's that hippie commune in Tenasket. I can't remember what it's called. Um, and they go up there and just hang out. And they come down to OMAC and okay, interesting. Okay, everyone, go to OMAC. Yeah. <laughs> yep. If anything, go in winter so you can go watch the outhouse races in Conconoli. <laughs> no joke, they race outhouses. <laughs> So we don't record the videos of this. <laughs> to explain to the listeners, my face is of sheer yeah, amazement. Yeah. Um, outhouse races. Perfect. That's something Explore Washington mm-hmm. State needs to, to cover this season. Yeah. Okay. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Things you didn't know, huh? Things you didn't know. Yeah. That's that's awesome, though. So, because based on our, our earlier phone conversation a while ago, mm-hmm. uh, you're... you're partner is a kite designer yes. correct yeah it's kind of something he does and and you guys sell kites correct do you have a, yeah. a company that sells and are, are they just his designs uh no or is it no so okay. uh they're mostly other folks designs his designs have been licensed out to a handful of other other companies and he's he's working on a few new ones um okay that that company is is level one kites uh, USA. So level one kites okay. is actually out of Germany. And uh, my partner is from Holland. And when he was a young tyke coming up through the kite world, his very, very first sponsor was level one. Um, and his, the first kite he designed 
uh, he actually designed for level one and it, it came out, this was, oh, 1998, 99, that, that time frame, right? Okay. Um, and they, they've been friends ever since. He's designed a ton more kites ever since then. And then, you know, just an opportunity arose and there's kind of a demand for some higher-end sport kites, especially at the level that, like, uh, my partner Paul and myself fly, more him than my, myself. Um, well, he's, isn't he kind of... Um... He's awesome. <laughs> he still wins me over with his kite flying. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's kind of won a few awards yes, here there yeah, through the years, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's nationally and internationally ranked. He's he's done a lot of uh, competitions. He's also done a lot of professional events. He's flown for a lot of um, big shows and stuff like this in front of thousands and thousands of people. He's also traveled the world uh, flying kites, and. Yeah, he's a he's a designer, a flyer, and then he happens to be a composites engineer on the side. And you know, like the the grand circles, right? That that right. that kites do for us is actually he uh, he designed the landing gear for the mini helicopter drone that's on the Mars rover right now that's headed to Mars. So there's a, yeah, there's a little bit of kite technology that has found its way onto the Mars rover. Uh huh. <laughs> see kites are everywhere you just didn't know it <laughs> i i'm a little distracted because i'm on the level one kites usa mm -hmm. site right now mm -hmm. and i'm watching a video of the badass ul yes you're going to explain to me what you, what ul is ultralight um ultralight mm -hmm. and i'm watching i believe it's Paul could be fly it. Is that correct? It, it could be most. I think most of what we have on there is him flying. We have a handful of other folks that I've filmed. And it's you a picture perfect day. <laughs> to, it, it's like you couldn't have picked better weather. This is stunning. I'll link to it. Um, this is amazing. And I'm going to stop because otherwise I'm going to get really distracted. <laughs> but just the cinematography is fantastic. The kite looks awesome. So if, if somebody wanted to get in, no, these aren't going to be starter kites. So no, no. Um, well, I mean, for a very, very discerning starter, like this is, this is the next step, right? Um, so if you really right. want is... to elevate your flying, this kite can do it, or the kites that we have can do it. Um, if you're just getting started and you don't know if this is something you want to do, absolutely, I recommend... Uh, Folks like Prism Kite Technologies, which is actually out of Seattle, Washington. So another, uh, you know, Washington native. They're awesome. Um, but yeah, these are these are kind of like the next step up. This isn't your first car. This is like, all right, I kind of know what I want in a car. And I want it to kind of be, you know, I want it to do stuff. I got into my, I've got into my, I've gotten to my first accident. I, I'm paying attention now and I'm paying my own insurance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to invest in something that's going to feed back to me and really take stuff to a new level. So yeah, right. that's, yeah, they're just, they're, they're, they're beautiful looking kites. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll pass it on. Well, that's one of the things that attracts me. <laughs> well, one of the things that does attract me to kite flying is that, there's some really cool looking stuff. Yeah. I didn't think it would fly. And then um, the technology is um, 
it's not just newspaper and, and uh, little twigs anymore. It's, it's, this is high end. I mean, this is, is this carbon fiber? Uh, so in most of those kites, yeah, it's carbon fiber and it's a, a high grade ripstop nylon. So it's not the stuff you buy at Joanne Fabrics. This is, right. this is the I stuff mean, used for like, you know, the high end sailboats that are in the world cup type of thing. Right. Yeah. They, they, so these are, yeah, these, and then they're not, I mean, there's a photo here on your, on the website of the, the stitching detail. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's, this is. Yeah. These are not machine made. These are all hand cut, handmade. And then we. Oh, they are. Yeah. So we actually, since this comes from Germany, we have uh, our German main company um, has a sewer and they sew all of the sales and they send the stuff to us. And then uh, Paul assembles the whole kite. So he does all the framing. We were hands-on from start to finish with this thing. It's it's not machine-made. Oh. It is incredibly precise, wow. but it is all hand-touched. We inspect every inch before it goes out type of thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that's okay. why it's kind of like a step above your entry-level kite, right? Because right? we, we dedicate a lot of time and we do follow up with well, folks just... and yeah. Well, there's a, a one picture on the site that I'm looking at, and it's a green and white kite, mm-hmm. uh, kind of standing on its tip, uh, in front of a old log. Mm-hmm. Is that where's that photo taken at? Do you do you know uh, off the top of your head? Let me flip through real quick. That one was on. A, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is it the one that's like in very dark kind of old log? Yep, dark old log. There's a mossy tree in front of it, kind of the picture of the front. Yeah, yeah, so that's the Hall of Mosses in the Olympic National Park. Okay. So yeah, and so we tie everything those, to watch yeah. this show. <laughs> that is on 15 foot lines. Uh, of course, you can't see the flyer in there. Um, and and Paul is standing about 15 feet away, and we had to, you know, trying to film and uh, fly is <laughs> difficult. So right, yep. right. No, this is this is awesome stuff. We'll put a link to it in the uh, into the uh, into the show notes. So as we're going to wrap this up because this has gone longer than we normally do. And, <laughs> and I, I can talk for that. Right. Well, I'm having I'm having a, no. I'm this is I'd keep going, but we have to. If if our audience wants to take a look at your stuff, mm-hmm. um, where can they find you? And Give them. A, we we kind of started talking about Fortuna Found, and then we just jumped right away from that. And I feel a little bit of guilt, and I'd like to kind of maybe close with: What are you hoping to accomplish with that site? What's what's your goal for that platform? Awesome. Uh, well, yeah. So uh, to find me, you can go to www.fortuna found.com that's f-o-r-t-u-n-a-f-o-u-n-d.com i'm also on instagram youtube and facebook just look for fortuna found uh pretty much the only one that comes up under that name so it should be very very easy to find um so (laughs) this for me is a very interesting passion project and it's, it's changing and developing as it moves along. So my passion and it's the driving force kind of behind all of Fortuna found is that I love sharing and connecting and discovering and exploring through kites. Uh, And one of the ways that that all really like comes together for me is by creating the tools and the platform for other people to do that. 
So when people ask me, you know, like, what is, what do I see in the future for this site? I can't tell you because I'm letting people dictate that. I'm letting everyone else kind of dictate that. And then I'm just kind of facilitating the connections and the growth. So this is a kite community for people to come together and to share with one another and to grow, right? So I've got like I'm right now I'm working on resources for teachers because I've got teachers coming to me saying, hey, I can't teach in a classroom and I want kids to try and make a kite at home. What can I do? Well, I just happen to know, you know, some designers that I can be like, all right, here's the design problem. We need to create a design that kids can make at home with materials that they have at home and have it be a kite that works. So Fortuna just kind of presents the space for that and then everyone can kind of plug and play what they want and of course you know the overarching theme is is kites um so yeah i'm kind of i'm watching like as this thing is growing and taking all these different avenues and yeah (laughs) that's that's really my main focus is just spreading love and joy of kite flying and making connections with people Well, that's awesome. I, I think it's it's awesome. It's a great looking site. You've got really cool stuff. Thank you. Thank you. It's, kite, it's changing constantly. Right <laughs> like, I have to constantly put up little like updates and say, hey, sorry, uh, I'm updating the website. So give it a day and it's going to look completely different because <laughs> I'm adding new information. Yep. Well, and that's uh, that's the That's half the fun of why we do these yeah. things is, is that <laughs> you, you can... And, and what I'm trying to explain to myself and, you know, I'm saying this publicly, so I should say it to myself is like, it's okay to make a mistake. Yes. Just give it, give it a try. You make a mistake and you go, hmm, well, that didn't work. And yeah. uh, we'll, we'll go back to doing something slightly different. So I think I love it when we talk to people that are out here doing really cool things and Fortuna found and this whole kite flying and going to the, going to the ocean and uh, seeing Washington state, you, you, it's awesome. So Thank you for being on. I've uh, exhausted my time with you. And in other words, you've got to get going. I know. (laughs) And so I I appreciate that. You've got to go, you've got to go camping. Yeah. Yeah, We're going to go up and have some cured meats in, uh, in in Leavenworth. (laughs) The good news is you'll you'll be able, you'll be able to park. (laughs) There won't be that many people. It's going to be a beautiful day. I think a lot of people are going to be out. So well, that's yeah. true. I mean, but they've changed the parking in downtown. You can't park down there yeah. now. And it's, 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 been, it, this is a strange year for everyone. Yeah. So, Which actually, anyway. I, I know this is long and it's just something I kind of, I, I want to leave you and, and your listeners sure. with. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you or, or your listeners are with the maker community. Um, and that's very much like that's at the basis of Fortuna Found. And it's kind of what you said is the whole, um, you know, trying things. And getting away from like the fear of it not working, right? Like just try it. And if it didn't work, okay, cool, move on, right? So that's that's why Fortuna kind of keeps changing and evolving and, and moving around is because it's like, hey, we're just going to try this thing. And if it doesn't work, that's cool. We learned something. We either learned we maybe should tweak it this way or we should move it that way. And that is exactly what kites do. Didn't work. Was it the wind? Was it the wrong kite? Was it? 
my shoes, <laughs> right? Operator Exactly. Error. Instead of just giving up, it's like, oh, okay, so what do I have to change to make this work? Let's try it again, right? So, yeah, that's that's kind of like my, my lasting thought I want everyone to leave with is just get out of the mentality of being afraid to try. Just do it. And so what if you fail? That's actually kind of cool that you learn something and just move on. <laughs> well, I think that's so well said. We'll stop with that. So thank you very <laughs> yeah. much for being a guest. It's been very enjoyable and I am excited to see what's next for Fortuna Found and, and other, other projects for you. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.